This is the SFF Audio Podcast. Hi, I'm Jesse. And I'm Scott. And I'm Paul. Hi, I'm Marissa. My true name is Caranthocorpal. <laughs> Try and <laughs> spell it. Thank you for it. telling us. <laughs> Now we have power of you. Yes. <laughs> yes. Um, I assume you're not just a skull. Uh, well. Don't assume. I you could be. I have grapes for eyes. Um, <laughs> <laughs> there's a f- piece of felt uh, in my jaw. And uh, we're going to talk about The Magic Goes Away by Larry Niven. It's a novella, sort of. Um. First, it was a short story, which I think I sent you guys as well, um, published in a magazine called Odyssey, which only lasted two issues and had some nice illustrations in it. Um, I think, Scott, you pointed that this was now an audiobook, um, but yeah. I was thinking about how I, I may have never read this story, um, I, or maybe I just read the short story and not the uh, novella before. Um, but I knew the story backwards and forwards, and I want to kind of say how I found out about it, because I think it's interesting, and I was thinking back while I was listening to it, like how I first heard of this. One of my uncles um, was big into science fiction and fantasy, and uh, he did something for me that I think was really nice, which was he would tell me about the books he was reading, and he didn't believe in this thing called spoilers, he, he thought that um, the way to get people interested in books was to tell them about the interesting things in the books. And uh, so he told me about how there's this book called The Magic Goes Away by Larry Niven. Larry Niven normally writes hard science fiction, but this is a hard fantasy. And it's about, a, about the Earth long ago uh, when magic still worked. And he explained how uh, magic had a sort of a resource-based system called mana, and all objects on Earth were sort of injected with mana at one point, but as magic was used, uh, the mana uh, was depleted, and the story of the novel was dealing with the problems of depletion of mana. And um, he gave some details, like about the the wheel uh, spell that basically just uses up as much mana as possible and uh how there's this character who's just a skull <laughs> and he's he's got this problem he's he he doesn't have enough magic to uh to keep himself alive but he also can't die because of a previous spell and i was like wow this sounds fascinating and i think i yeah. i tracked down the story and um and read it how old were you when he told you last i oh, probably 11 12 13 something like that Oh, yeah, cool. That must have sounded so fun. Uh, I I, I have a theory. I don't want to derail this conversation, but I have a theory that the whole spoiler phenomenon and the whole idea of spoilers is something that we learn and get more, and some people, not you, Jesse, get more uptight about as they age, whereas kids kids are much more not even resistant. They want to know what's going on versus... But, They're but scientists. Think, they want to understand everything. But I, but I think as time goes on, for a lot of people, not you, Jesse, that that sort of gets flipped on its head and you don't want to be spoiled. Many people don't want to be spoiled 
Whereas their 10 year old selves was like, tell me more about, tell me more about what they walk on clouds. Really? Yeah. And like how all the logic works that, that is like, Oh, you know, you know, unicorns were a thing, but now their horns are getting smaller and smaller. (laughs) The (laughs) magical part of them is getting smaller and smaller. So yeah, I, I think that Paul, you're probably exactly right. This is probably the explanation because I'm obviously only still 11, 12, 13 years old in many respects. And, uh, I, but that gives you a that gives you a sense of wonder. I'm not I'm not using this to slam you, Justin. No, no, I think that's why I'm saying you're a bad. bad I, I thing. take it on board, uh, and I think it's sad that people. I'd like, be curious if this is the same in different cultures as well, though, because I I almost oh, yeah. feel like this whole like spoiler sensitivity thing is more of a cultural thing. That's like that, I thought you were going to say like as we mature, or as we have matured as a culture, it's become stronger no. like i don't know if you didn't learn about spoilers and stuff if you would care that much like i wonder if other people in other cultures are like who cares if you know the end of the story it's the joy of getting there that's more important i, I had a student reading a pile of my comics yesterday going through and uh, she was reading one called snot girl and mm. um uh it uses a lot of you know brb sort of language in it and uh and she was saying what's, what's wtf mean and I said, mm, kind of like, what the hell? <laughs> but then I was, uh, I was like, why did I censor myself? It's because she's, she's like seven years old, right? And, and I also, um, I don't want to make trouble. F- like, normally I just tell them all the answers, right? That's about the worst sin I've committed this year in terms of denying, right? Den- because they all stand for something. And... You know, if you haven't encountered it, she wanted to know all the things because she was really enjoying the comic. Um, I don't love Snot Girl that much myself, but I can see why a girl, you know, who uh, likes good art and um, likes girly stories would totally like Snot Girl. She wanted me to buy the next next volume, right? Um, So... Yeah, I think it's exactly that, is that they're little scientists. And and as we get older, we think that treasuring the experience of discovery is what gave us joy. You know, like savoring. Mm. But uh, to me, that's like, you know, you find a really nice restaurant and you say, um, I'm not going to share this with anybody. They should discover it for themselves. <laughs> Instead of saying, oh, you got to try this. It's so good. Ask them to put on some, you know, extra jalapenos. Or, <laughs> or it's like going into the restaurant and saying to a waiter, like, surprise me. Oh, I hate oh, that. That's, that's always works well. <laughs> no. Oh, okay. okay. I, no, no. I will confess that actually did work well once. Uh, who Who's read this before? Paul, you've read it before? I, 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 I read this before. And when I decided to start tracking down all these stories way back in the early days of my life, I came across the the first story in this series, which is what was the name of the thing? Oh yes, not long before the end. And the the the, uh, the events of that story get referenced in here. But I read that story first, and I thought, well, that's interesting. And I found, oh, there's more. And so I then I came across what good is a glass dagger, which is also references here. That's the story where. The warlock encounters and defeats Wavy Hill. And then I read this, and then I read the stories, some of the stories in The Magic May Return, The Lion is Addict, The Wishing Game. I did read 
the burning city uh, and the burning tower. There's a couple of these I actually have not actually tracked down and read. I'm going to have to maybe figure that out sometime. So, yeah, so this is my second time reading this. I had an old, I had the old uh, paperback copy. I think it was my older brother's. So I'm not quite certain where I'd actually gotten it from, maybe from a used bookstore. Yeah, it, it'd be hard to find this unless it was an ebook today. Um, oh, God. Did you say, yeah. is the Burning City uh, in this same universe or something? Yep. Yeah, it's just oh, a set, I didn't know that. Set, set in, uh, set in uh, basically an ancient version of Los Angeles. Mm. And I will warn you, I did not find it anywhere near as good as these stories because the the political messaging gets really ham-handed. It's just like, okay, I see what you're doing there. That's I'd like to have a real story now, please. And uh yeah. Not be, not, not, so it's like, yes, I know the IRS is bad. Let's move on, which is basically the, the political messaging in the novel. The IRS is bad. It's a series. It goes on too long. <laughs> this is the truth, right? <laughs> later it later is. books are also co-written, co, uh, right? Uh, it's co, co- it's one of maybe Pornell's the reason why we get the, uh, the anti-IRS crap in The Burning City, which I really wanted to like because like, oh my God, a whole new novel in the – in the magic universe, I was so primed and ready for it. So ready. It's like, oh, come on, please. I, uh, I, I feel sort of the same about this book. I, I really love the setup. I love all the ideas. Um, less interested in the execution. Um, as we get, I was getting to the end, I was saying, yeah, <clears throat> it's okay. <laughs> that's that's kind of my view too. I thought the ideas and stuff oh, so were good. really cool. He's so smart, but I think the execution was not. <laughs> I, I you know this is usually when I'm prepping for a podcast and I read, I mark stuff. Mm-hmm. I didn't mark anything in this one. Um, I think I must but, have read the original uh, magazine version uh, of this, which is is substantially shorter. Um, uh-huh. It has it doesn't have the breakup like by chapters and such. Also doesn't have the amazing art, so I'm kind of glad I read it because the because the art's so good. Um, but it it felt like I was thinking how much it felt like uh, sort of trying to extend uh, a sh- really good story premise into Ringworld, but set on Earth. Did you guys feel the Ringworld uh, sort of similarities, or am I crazy? Well, I guess the similarity is they they all kind of came together and then went on this little trip. Yeah, they go on a quest. <laughs> you know, is that what a you big mean? Dumb, yeah. no, big dumb object in the sky. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> yes. Once 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 they get into the clouds, yeah, they're, they're, they're all, and and in reaching their uh, conclusion, it's not quite what they ever expected it to be. Like, oh yes, let's bring the moon down to Earth, but we're going to do that. We're going to need a god, and the god gets powerful, and then, yeah, we got to deal with that god. I I, I, I like more of the stuff before they actually get to the god. I'm, yep. not, so, I'm not so real thrilled with the denouement of the, of the novel. I mean, I mean, like, th- them gathering the people on the quest, and we learn about, we're about the survivor Atlantis, and what happened to poor Wavy Hill from what good is a glass dagger? Oh, now he now he's an immortal skull. Poor poor Wavy Hill. Yeah, he but got what he actually, wanted. Immortality. He got what he wanted, but not in the way he wanted it. But you know, <laughs> it's been getting, screaming for thirty years. <laughs> <laughs> 
Uh, so, yeah. Um, I, I actually haven't read Ringworld or any what? Larry Niven. What? Yeah. You weren't on Ringworld Plus once? He's one of those one like one of those authors that has just always um, you know, there's like a, someone you just haven't read and haven't mm. made your way to his books. Mm-hmm. I started to read Protector, mm-hmm. um, but I didn't get super into it and I didn't actually finish it, so I think I have to go back to that too. Oh, you you, you gotta you gotta appreciate how idea heavy his stuff is. I love it's uh, yeah so good. He's one of those ones that I it's almost like I know it's going to be so good and I'm kind of kind of just being like leaving it as like a <laughs> Well, don't build it up too much because it doesn't yeah. you know, it is all uh, he's so good. I mean, I was just enjoying all the little uh, the the little consequences of this. That's the idea. the whole thing, right? Is we have a cultural legacy that magic and dragons and unicorns and all sorts of stuff was real. I mean, people, some people still believe in magic, right? Um, mm-hmm. It's a great, uh, what he's done is he's retconned, right, in a certain sense, or at least explained how you can have our universe, which is a wholly magic-free place. Uh, well, almost wholly, wholly magically free place. Um, and uh, a universe full of magic. Right. Uh, there's a great line in here, um, and he's absolutely dead on. This is why I think Larry Niven's so smart. Is he he sees like other people do things that are true for all humanity. So all the people pooping on him as being a sexist, yeah, he's kind of sexist. We know this, but he's also um, able to say this true thing: the moon is magic, right? That's why we look at it. We go outside and we look. Uh, there's a line in here, you know. Everyone who looks up at the moon knows there's magic in it. Even today, we know this, right? That's why they want to go there. That's why they want to get up there. And when we achieve that as a species, that is an amazing, like, achievement in a way that uh, this book is kind of pointing to. Mm-hmm. And yet, uh, we also know that. We, there is no world snake anymore, if there ever was one. But um, you know, his explanation with—I uh, I think this is one of the things my uncle told me—was um, that uh, you know, amoeba <laughs> used to be huge monsters that crawled through dungeons, right? Yep. <laughs> and I, as I their magic depleted in the world, they got smaller and smaller. Well. Mm-hmm. They're gonna bet you be microscopic. There is a D and D monster called the Gray Ooze, and when right. they describe when the, when the when they talk about it, it's like, oh my god, that's where Gygax got the idea of the Gray Ooze. I mean, got it from this novel. I, I I always thought of it as the gelatinous cube, but um, no, no, gelatinous cube, cube is, is different, cubic, though. so it doesn't make as yeah, much yeah. sense. But yeah, but an amorphous amorphous th- thing that just moves around. Yeah, that's a great that's a great ooze for sure. It's like, oh my god, this is where Gygax got the idea now I, now i wonder if uh this is actually in appendix n or not um, so are you talking about the the goo thing yeah the goo, goo yeah. Right? yeah it's it, it's described as having vacuoles and it's processing it's translucent right so you can see in, as it processes things and i think in the in the ebook version you guys are looking at the paper book version i'm looking at there are uh pictures of one of the characters holding it 
um, as he's describing it and says, goo. That's one of the first words we all say as babies. It would be spooky to it. run into a, a tardigrade. <laughs> I was thinking about that. I mean, oh, yeah. Yeah, they, they wouldn't have they wouldn't known about that, but man, those things are amazing. Yeah. They're so that's, cute. That's something that could be huge, you know, could have been huge one day. <laughs> and oh. now they're tiny. Yeah. The other thing I'm thinking of is, is as far as the magic goes away and all this stuff going away. Have any of you read the Adrian Mayor not 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 novel, not fiction book, The First Fossil Hunters? Mm-mm. No. It, it's a non-fiction book about how Greeks and Romans found fossils and what they thought of them. Mm. Oh. And I was thinking, I was thinking, I was thinking that in terms of this book because they they found dinosaur bones and all sorts of things, and they they tied it in with mythical and legendary creatures and so well yeah th- like for example the the, the most well-known thing is um a protoceratops which is kind of uh like a triceratops except without the horns if you take a look at a protoceratops skull a fossil of it, it looks like a hawk lion cross and so they found these protoceratops fossils like huh these are griffins <laughs> so in in the context of this universe they were griffins, and then they just got fossilized into protoceratops bones. That's what happened. That's what happened to them. They got changed into something "quote unquote" non magical and real and fossilized, and that's, that's why cool. we dig them up today. I got a, mm-hmm. I got a section of the book. This is on my version in the paper book, page forty six. Um, in his youth, the warlock had killed carnivorous goo the size of houses. To a mere warrior, they were more dangerous than dragons. A sword was generally too short to reach the beast's nucleus. By contrast, mm-hmm. this goo was tiny. It was formless and translucent, with darker organs and vacuoles of food showing within its body. It arched itself in the morning sunlight and tried to flow into Clubfoot's shadow. There! That's what I'm talking about, Clubfoot cried. The goo are surviving, but look at it. Goo are named for the first words spoken by a baby. They're said to be the children of the first god. Formless, adaptable, created in the image of the crawling chaos. <laughs> yep. <laughs> we saw them. Smaller than a man's fist in the desert, where the manna is poor. Do you see how small it has gotten? Goo live by fire and magic, but they can use fire alone. When the world is barren of magic, the goo will remain, but they'll probably be too small to see. So I love what he's done here, is he's actually done so much work right first of all he referenced as paul pointed out hp uh, lovecraft right the crawling chaos by the way that's not in the short story that oh, i could yeah. see so he added that yeah <laughs> uh, there's there's good additions here there's definitely good additions um and he's he's also said this you know fire and magic so fire is sort of what we have it's technology right we all have we're we're human beings we are unpowered by uh by magic elves are all gone because they are powered by both magic and fire right i think that's so cool that he's managed to f- slip that idea in here right mm-hmm. and and it's uh, i was watching the most recent avengers movie which surprising to me i thought was the best avengers movie one of the best it, infinity war yeah I thought it was one of the best, um, uh, you know, Marvel movies. And one of the things I was thinking about why it was good is is that it it 
mixes in the Doctor Strange um, and yep. and the the sort of the magic of all these Infinity Stones, which you know, complete bullshit. But if you look at it like a uh, the way they explained it in the movie was these are you know created at the time of the point of creation of the universe and it's kind of like the key to time you know, like yep the, yep nice haku reference there man yeah <laughs> and and then you you know you get them together and and also the bad guy had like a purpose and so even though it's even though it's a i'm not trying to make this purpose. an avenger show but uh, thinking about bringing these characters together who'd have different skills you know um, who uh, and very the, different outlooks. I mean, Iron and, Man is all technology. Doctor Strange right. is all magic. The, the fire, standing side by side. Yeah, the, exactly. The fire, got the, the fire and the magic. And Doctor Strange. You know, I didn't think much of the Doctor Strange movie, but you need to have that movie to introduce them to everybody, right? To bring it in. And then you've got a god, right, in the form of Thor, who gives his little "I'm fifteen hundred years old" speech, which kind of fits this so i thought it was actually pretty pretty good and it, it's that coming together of a bunch of different skill sets um and and explaining some stuff and also dealing with a real issue right um which th- that movie did this i realized when i finished watching the avengers movie why it was good i was thinking oh this is interesting um the magic goes away is a dying earth story mm-hmm. right Normally we think of dying Earth as the end of fire, right? The end of the sun or the end of the Earth's resources. And here that's exactly what we have. But it's it's the giving... We live in the dying Earth. We live in the dead Earth. The magic is dead, right? I thought that was fascinating to think about, about it that way. And that's why this wor- book works, even though sort of the back half is far less interesting than, than the setup and the premises. I think that's a really great idea. I mean, there's so many ideas that are sprinkled through the stories too, that I, that the, the, the full novel just can't sustain a full thing. Like for example, in what is it, Glass Dagger, the 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 Warlock versus Wavyhole story, when Warlock and his uh, companion, who turns out to be a a wolfware, not a werewolf, and that that's that's I'm spoiling Jesse. It turns out that he's a wolfware. Please tell me more. He's, um, it turns out at the end that the guy who thinks he's been a werewolf all along is really a wolf that's really a man. And he realizes when the magic goes away, he and his kin will all be just wolves. And he hates that idea and he hates magicians. But one of the more interesting things, it, I mean, Wavy Hill sets up this elaborate trap of magic dead zones that you have to like mm-hmm. get through to get to his castle. And he also has a dragon. But since magic is so low, the dragon is actually mutated and not a good form. It's a snail dragon. It's a giant snail with dragon breath. <laughs> and, and, and and Warlock says, well, 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 just leave just leave me alone. You can go run away. I won't fight you. I'll go take on Wavehill. Like, oh yeah, I, I could go run away and I could probably be to the forest by midsummer. It's like, yeah, no. So. I, I also think there's some, some hidden stuff that, I don't know if it's intentional. It must be um, in here that makes it resonant. So uh, again, a thing that comes subsequent to this book in a, in a way, um, but has the same resonance um, is Neuromancer. We've got, we've got uh, a ROM, right? Uh, What's Dixie Flatline in Neuromancer who, uh, once you boot him up, 
he, he all he wants is to die, right? You you can use him as a resource to help you. He was like the greatest hacker ever, right? And how Neuromancer is a book about hackers, which is people who can do magic, right? Um, and they get Case and and uh, Dixie Flatline and uh, Molly and Armitage is running them, and they they have a big quest to you know do something big and that, that feels like you know very resonant and it's it's the dungeons and dragons experience except that's why there's a cyberpunk you know role-playing game scene right with uh we were seeing those magic cards i guess i sent you the pictures yep. of the magic cards mm-hmm. that have uh how, how do you pronounce that that card name paul Never Neverall's disc. Right, and that's Larry Niven backwards. Yep. <laughs> and, and, and I tweeted to you that I I've stolen this idea before. I had in my role playing games, I had a character talk about mana draining things. Like, do I need a do I need a Niven disc cell here to drain the magic? So yeah, I've I've stolen from Larry Niven's universe. So but, but I love how that, it works not just in in the magic game, but also in the Netrunner game. Because yeah. there, it's a disc you put into the computer. Remember discs? You put a you know, mm. floppy disk, you put it into the computer, and it you run that program, and it neutralizes everything, right? It's a, yeah, but if you lose the disc, the game's over. That's right. It only it's only the yeah. It's it's uh it's it's very clever that he's sort of almost he's systematized magic to the point where. Everything was possible, but now it's going to cost you so much. You really want to use your resources, limited resources. This is a peak oil problem. You know, what, what are we going to do when we run out of oil? Maybe we yep. never will, but the, <laughs> we definitely uh, run out of mana in this universe. And the, they're trying to solve it by pulling the moon down and getting more mana. Wow. <laughs> what a big idea! This night what an is... idiotic idea because you know. Oh they, yeah, they, and they, it, it is idiotic, and that's up. why the sort of the back end doesn't work. But it's so such a great idea. I so did any has anyone read uh, the Magic May Return stories? I know I, 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 I know I know Jesse included in uh, the Dropbox. I I'd read I'd read those. There, there's a couple other authors that. Uh, Engage with that. Uh, Rogers. So, wait, bef- before you go ahead, is it written by Larry Niven or is it written by other authors? Um, there's one story by him and the rest of the stories are by other people. So ah, okay. That's what I saw there. It, yeah, it's, hmm. set in, it's set in the, in the universe. Um, let me pull that up real quick. Right, so you can tell the listeners who exactly who's in it because I don't remember often. I want to I wanna ask Paul, oh, not Paul, Scott. Since he's been so quiet, yeah. I want. Oh, I've got that. I've got that table of contents up. So Niven and Fred Saberhagen, Dean Ng, Stephen Barnes, and Paul Anderson, with yep. Mildred Downey Broxson. Huh. Oh, I would love to. I'd like to read those. Oh, this one doesn't. Wait a minute. This one doesn't have this Zelazny one. Where did when did where did where did I read this last? It must not have been in this collection. There's this Zelazny. There's one called More Magic. And looking at that one. Maybe it's in there. The it room. is, yeah. Mana from Heaven, Roger. Yeah, that's, that's the story I was thinking thinking yeah. about. Okay, my, I must have Bob read Shaw, Magic too. Diane Gerard, Roger Zelazny is in More Magic. More Magic. So yeah, so in the Zelazny story, we get set in the modern day, and there's a 
magician, although he doesn't do very much magic at all. And his great project is, spoilers, he's trying to help get the uh, level of magic on Earth back up to the point where big level spells can be cast again. And there's he has a love interest and there's a guy who's trying to take the magic for himself. And they explicitly tie into the idea that the level of magic on Earth is basically tied to, as we've learned here, by meteorite impacts. Meteorites provide Earth with magic. And since when the magic went away and magic collapsed, ever since Earth's been slowly been bombarded with meteorites. And so the magic level has been slowly going up and up and up over the last 13,000 years. And he, they hope that at some point they'll be to the point where they can actually do spells again. But they're going to do it better this time. They're not going to make the stupid mistakes they did the last time. I want uh, I want to oh, see it, you guys. Uh, you're looking at the the book, uh, Scott. I want you to see if you see what I see when I read this, because when I figured it out, I was like, "Oh, this is cute." And I think Scott should I'd be able to identify it if I emphasize the right words. So I'm starting on page eight, and I'm gonna read uh, to the top of page ten. Um, there's a couple of illustrations in there, right? Listen to this. Uh, so this is uh, chapter two in the book, The Warlock. Which starts with a, a picture of a dude with a flowing beard looking up at the moon. Prist Hill and the village called Warlock's Cave were 600 miles apart. Once, the Warlock would have flown the distance in a single night. Even today, they might have taken riding dragons, intelligent allies, in, and in one or another region where there was too much use of magic had leached the mana from the earth, they might have left a dra dragon bones to merge with the rocks. Dragon metabolism was partly magical. It annoyed Warlock to be leaving Warlock's cave on muleback, but he and Clubfoot considered this prudent. It was, it was worse than they had thought. The mana-rich places they had expected to cross by magic were not there. Three of the mules died in the desert when Clubfoot ran out of the ability to make rain. The situation was just this desperate. Clubfoot and Warlock, two of the most powerful magicians left in the world, came to the conference at Prist Hill on foot, leaving up, leading a pack mule. Clubfoot was an American with red skin and straight black hair and arched beak of a nose. His ancestors had fled an Asian infestation of vampires, <laughs> had crossed the sea by magic in the company of a tribe of the wolf people. He limped because of a hand handicap he might have cured decades ago, except that it would have cost him half his power. And Warlock limped because of his age. Limping, they came to the crest of the hill overlooking Prist Hill. It was late afternoon. Already the tremendous shadow of Mount Valhalla, last home of the quarrelsome pantheon of gods, now gone mythical. I love that. <laughs> gone mythical mm -hmm. is a phrase that comes up, right? Sprawled mm -hmm. eastward across Prist Hill. The village had grown since the Warlock had last seen it, 110 years ago. The newer houses were lower, sturdier, held up, not by spells spoken on a, over a cornerstone, but by their own strength. Pristil was the was founded Pristil was founded on magic, the warlock said, half to himself. Clubfoot heard. Was it? The warlock pointed to a dish shaped shaped depression north of the city wall. The crater is old, but you can still see the shape of it, can't you? That's Fistfall. The village stare started as a trading center for talismans, fragments of the boulder of the starstone that made the crater. The merchants ran out of starstone long ago, but the village keeps growing. Do you wonder how? Now, um, th th this point in the book, if you're just listening to the audiobook, you don't get the picture on the right. 
you guys seeing this picture? I'll just describe it for everybody who isn't. Mm-hmm. Um, there's a mountain, uh, which is uh, called, uh, what's it called? Valhalla. Um, there's the village, which is in uh, depression. And then there's the moon in the background. And there's two magicians st- pointing to the, the village. And there's a donkey with them. Right? You all mm-hmm. seen yeah. this? Mm-hmm. But yeah. it's mm-hmm. not two wizards, is it? It's two wizards and a skull. And the third wizard is the skull. So we've got three... Three of the great, greatest wizards left in the universe. What's another word yeah. for wizard? You're talking, about like, Warlock? you're talking about like the three wise men or something like the that? Three magi. magi. Oh! Now I get it. Thank you, Jesse. Mm. Duh. It's like, that is totally what he was going for, right? <laughs> Yeah, totally. You're right. And this is so, so that kind of retelling, like, is happening all over this this book in the background of the the mechan the mechanism of the story, you know, going forward. So I think that it, it, this is the kind of book that will reward um, careful reading. Mm. I just thought that was so brilliant when I was like, oh yeah, it's not two wizards, it's three. Right, we don't find mm-hmm. that out right away, but three magi following a star uh, that fell from the sky, right? And uh, and then while they're having their meeting, some guy kicks the some barbarian kicks the door open um, and says, <laughs> "I need to see a wizard," right? And then they go <laughs> off on a quest. And uh, I I also I think Orlandi's stories is is great, uh, opening with that um, with the raft and the and the collapse of. Atlantis. This is very much um, kind of a after you know, the fall story. Yeah, but explaining like you know why Atlantis sunk, right? Everything's yep. explained, and that's that's what's so cool is he's he said I can I can solve that. <laughs> he's, yeah, you know, he's trying to solve everything. In the original, in the original, uh, in the in the original story, not long before the end, that's the story uh, where the warlock. Uh, First unleashes uh, the disc and deals with the the demon sword. He taught he tells the barbarian who has the sword, like, did you know Atlantis is technologically unstable and it's only being kept up by magic? And when the magic goes out, they'll be they'll be it will sink. And, and so here we get the payoff yeah, that finally happens two stories later. That yep, Atlantis did sink and it happened just we get one we get one survivor because the centaur can't survive. The whole fire and magic thing can't survive without the magic because the 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 bodily uh, constraints because the centaur wouldn't work. Although I've seen recently there were people talking about, well, how could you actually make a centaur that actually would work, and how would the organs work? <laughs> but yeah, but living makes it easy. Yeah, magic centaurs yeah. work because of magic. The end. There's yeah, definitely there's, something. Uh, oh, sorry, Scott. No, please go ahead. go ahead. Go ahead. I was say there's something that was so. Um, like that image with the centaur on the raft just feels so modern somehow so as well with iconic. all of our like climate change and these like massive floods and you oh, see all yes. these images and the news of people like pulling each other up onto roofs and stuff. It was just like, oh, it's too real. I got to tell you guys about a book now. Thank, thank you, Mercy. You just reminded me that. Um, I know Jesse won't read it because it just came out this year. But it's, it's, <laughs> well, it's, tell it's, me, it's, tell me all the interesting parts on a mic. Okay, okay. The author, the author's name is Rebecca Rowanhorse. She just actually won a Hugo for a short story this year, but this is her first novel. It came out this year. It's called Trail of Lightning. Um, 
um, massive massive apocalypse happens. Most of the world is flooded, just be beyond even what would be would make sense for even if all the polar caps melted. I mean, all of all of the eastern United States is flooded. That just wouldn't happen if all the ice melted. What's really left is an area that used to be a reservation of Navajo in New Mexico and the areas around. They have magical walls around them, and the main character has demonic slash magical powers and hunts hunts monsters and creatures that threaten the people inside those walls and people are coming in from outside the walls. Her, her mentor is a half God. There's coyote, the God who has a tangled relationship with her. There's a shaman who has secrets of his own and it's a post-apocalyptic landscape where the magic has returned and in a big way. And yeah, like everyone knows it, but there's also remnants of technology and guns and, other stuff that's still lying around, but yeah, the magic, it's the magic hazard. They call it now. Now we're living in the sixth world. So it's like a, a new world where magic has risen because most, and most of the, most of the world is destroyed. And what's left is what is now today in the real life, a very impoverished area of the country. But yep. Ha ha. They're the people actually survived and mm-hmm. trying to make the best of the way in a still impoverished, but at least they're still alive and not underwater. Like most of the world is. It's a really, really good novel. I liked it a lot. Sounds good. Cool. Mm-hmm. What, what were you gonna say, Scott, about Atlantis? Or oh yeah, I was gonna. I was just um, noting um, that this has um, sort of foreshadowing the late Larry Niven's later stuff too. Mm-hmm. You know, like Fistfall. You know, Lucifer's yep. Hammer and yep. Footfall. Huh. And then um, also, I felt like um, there was a lot of Inferno stuff going on in here. And um, Dante's Inferno. Fist of God is also the name of the mountain in in the earlier novel. Ringworld, yeah. Ringworld. Yeah. 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 Right, right. Inferno, as you point out, Scott, is an interesting Larry Niven Pornell novel where a science fiction writer goes to hell. Hilarity ensues. <laughs> yeah, it, <laughs> right, it's, right. it's very funny. It's actually really good. And the sequel's not bad either. It's not great. I've never actually read the sequel. I did the I audiobook when it came out. It was, it's very long, like 30 years later. Like yeah, that. but this one, this one sort of has that Dante's Inferno feel to it. It's like they go, you know, they walk a while and then they encounter something, and you know, ooh wow, and then they move on, and then they encounter something, ooh wow, you know, that's yeah. just like Inferno's structured. It is, and that yeah. of course is based on another classical, right? Classical yeah. uh, Inferno. <laughs> um, mm-hmm. I, I want to point out that there is another um, interesting connection. I don't know how far back Larry Niven's reading in science fiction goes, because he was born in, what year? 49? Uh, I don't know. He's old. <laughs> <laughs> He's older than me. Um, I found a story. I'm going through um, science fiction uh, magazines. I found a story in Planet Stories uh, called The Dancers. This is in January 1952. Um, I found out it was public domain. It is, I think, by Margaret Sinclair, although... Um, it is under the name Wilton Hazard. It's three pages long. I read it because it was super short. <laughs> oh, and I'm looking for good stuff that's super short. And then I, I tweeted it out um, and I sent it to the people at Blue Hours who produce the Suns um, Suspense radio drama series or audio drama series. And they made a little uh, audio drama out of it. Little meaning like it's less than 15 minutes long because it's a very short story. But it's it's great. The Earth has died. Um, they don't know how. The Earth has died, and uh, 
the last remnants of humanity um, build a uh, rocket ship and fly to a new planet. Um, they've just landed, and they've uh, killed the only residents on board the planet. Um, and then uh, they're waiting for the dawn. Now, they don't know how the Earth died, but somehow the sun just went out for no reason, right? And here they've landed on this planet. Uh, it's going to be their new Eden. Um, and when they landed, these aliens were all dancing. Um, and there's like five of them left, and two of them are like old men, and there's like a kid and uh, a woman, right? They kill them. And then we find out uh, that by killing them, they doom themselves again. So what the premise is, and it's explained very, very cutely in the story and very nicely in the audio drama, is that the only thing that kept the sun rising every day is the belief of the dancers. That is the un the people unfamiliar with how science works and physics, the fire works. They're only familiar with the magic. And what happened to cause the earth to be destroyed was the last uncontacted tribe on earth was shown their error of their ways, you know? <laughs> and it's like, wow, <laughs> it's kind of like what's going on, right? It's the use, you know, if you, if you, if you keep, keep it all go like, what, what do they say here? Who knows what holds the moon up? Well, we all know it's gravity, right? But uh, the way actual, you know, philosophy of science works is we assume that the universe has a uniformity because we see physics working here as it does, right? And we see it working universally around the Earth as it does uniformly. But our experience of the universe is basically the Earth and, oh, now the moon, briefly, for like six weekends, <laughs> right? Six weekends on another body. But dark matter, dark energy, those aren't real things. Those are explanations for why our explanations don't work, right? So mm -hmm. I think that, that the, the, the kind of modesty of that is used to great effect in here by Larry Niven saying, look, we have, I've solved everything in, in hard science fiction. Look at my books, right? And then people point to, yeah, but you haven't solved unicorns. And he says, I have a plan for that. <laughs> um, have, have you read? Have you read? It's the, epicycles that work. Yep. Have you Have you read the uh, Sabet stories? I don't. I think I might have. Uh, tell me more about them. It sounds familiar. Yep. The Sabet stories by Larry Niven are, are time travel stories where Sabet's who lives about the year three thousand. The Earth The Earth is a crap sack. There's not many species left because they've we've poisoned the air. It's high in carbon dioxide. There's really humans, dogs, and dull yeast that people eat. It, the Secretary General is a hereditary predict, uh, position that rules the Earth, but he's inbred, so he's got like the mind of a child. And Svets works for the time travel department, and his job is to keep his department running and getting budgets by going back and bringing back interesting animals and things for the Secretary General so he'll be happy and give them more money. So he goes back in time, and every time he goes back into the past, he winds up running into fantastical creatures by pure accents. He... he, he uh, he goes after a, he tries to go after a squid. He winds up running into a kraken and Moby Dick. He winds up, <laughs> he, he runs into a unicorn. He runs into 
dragons. He runs into all sorts of weird, fantastical things, and he can't figure out why he keeps running into fantasy every time he goes back into science, back back to the past. And Larry Niven's point, he says in one of the novels, is basically that since time travel is fantasy, so when he goes back in the past, he's going always into a fantastical past, not into the quote-unquote real past. At one point, he tries to steal... um, Henry Ford's first car that doesn't go well. He winds up changing the past. Another time travel tries so it's to change. It's a collection his story. or a, a... It's, it, it's collection of short stories. And there's one novel called Rainbow Mars where where Svets gets the bright idea to uh, get a seed from Yggdrasil, and well, that turns out to be a bad idea. And plants it on Mars and on Earth that turns out to be a bad idea because it starts destroying the entire Earth. So I've they're, read. I've read the. Oh, there's a wolf in my time machine. Um, that's that's one of them. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, that which is uh, is good. Yeah. The I've sh- I've read some of the short stories. I guess I yeah. didn't realize they were a series. Yeah. There were. There's a series of them. Yeah. Basically, he runs into fantastical creatures every time he goes back in the past, which is hilarious because time travel time travel itself is fantasy. Therefore, he runs into fantasy fantasy things. Yeah. I need to read more Larry Niven short stories. Though. I guess I, I limited myself to a lot of the audiobooks um, after a certain point. I have uh, some of these. What's available? Papers. Yeah, what is and what isn't available in mm-hmm. audio? Yeah, and he was, you know, he was a popular writer, so there was a lot. But short stories are harder to get on audio. Mm-hmm. Sad, sadly and tragically, yes. Mm-hmm. So I didn't realize with this book, um, this is the first time that. Mana, as I guess Kiwis pronounce it. You guys say mana. <laughs> mana, mana. Um, this is the first time it's mana? used in like fantasy. Really? Is that right? Yeah. Is, this, is this the trope namer for the idea of mana? Might mm-hmm. no, no, can't yeah. be. Mana's, well, that's what... mana's in mana's from heaven. Right? Yeah, yeah I mean, like I know it. That's how I knew it as well but, but... from like Maori culture and stuff. Like I just thought it was, um, it, yeah, that everyone just used it in kind of like Polynesian. They do culture, okay. but I think this is the first, according to the internet, this mm-hmm. is when it was like introduced to fantasy and became like a trope in fantasy. Yeah, I didn't. Well, and mana sense. in fantasy meaning you know some uh, that magic is a limited resource. Yeah, that the, the okay. magic is a tangible as a unit of magic, whatever year. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Right. Okay. How many mana yeah. points yeah. you're using? So mana, yeah. mana from heaven in the Bible is different, not yeah. the same thing. It's still magic, right. though, Paul, uh, Scott. Right? That's, well, it's food. Yeah. yeah. It's magic. Food, but... yeah, it's magic that it appeared, I guess, but it's it's food sustenance. Well, yeah, the, the the internet seems to dovetail with what Marissa said that Larry Niven was the first person to actually use mana as a. As mag- as, as a term is, for magic. There is a shout out to Australia in here. Um, yeah, and New Zealand. Okay, yeah, I I wasn't quite on board with what was what was being pointed out there. I think there were some jokes that were going over my head. Can anybody explain what why uh, that was brought in? Because it it wasn't really relevant to the rest of the story, was it? Well, but they're talking about that since uh, they're relatively unpopulated, that the level of mana there would be relatively high. So yeah, let's emigrate there. And they talk, they talk, they talk about the moa. Those are the right. big bird, flightless birds that that are that super the, yummy. Uh, that are super yummy and got uh, eaten to they extinction. Try the moa; it's great. <laughs> yeah, and 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 then they talk about oh, yeah, it's like okay, at the co- yeah, we'll, we'll settle the coasts and it'll be fine. But the magic will run out, so they wind up moving until until they get to the center where there'll be small, diminutive people whose magic doesn't work. They're basically describing the aborigine. 
and and yeah. and, and by extension, talking about the Aborigines' um, cultural heritage and talking about the dream time. That's what I was thinking. Is is there that's, something that's going on? In. Like the dream is the dream time sort of is that. Is that what is Larry Niven saying? Oh, this Dreamtime stuff is really interesting, and it fits in with my explanation because the area was colonized last by humans, other than Antarctica. Um, therefore, it was more connected to the fantasy world for longer than the rest of the world. Is that what is that what that was for? Because I yeah, thought that was pretty cool. That, if that's what it was, that that's that that's where he's going with. Yes, yeah, yeah, that, that was one cool. of the last areas to colonize. Yeah, that. That would have the most last remnants of magic. This reminds me of um, the Avram Davidson novel, Masters of the Maze, which is about this this place between realities and times. And at the end, one of the antagonists going through the maze winds up getting ejected because you know his side is lost he gets he winds up getting ejected to like 30,000 BC and yeah winds up getting adopted by aborigines who think he's a ghost because he's white skinned and they're all dark skinned which i thought was kind of kind of amusing so uh marissa i've never been to new zealand um sounds like i have Sorry. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> so I might be going in there, Paul, but not from there. So I'm not from there. By being there. Um the it sounds like the cultural practices of the Maori I I had um one of my mom's best friends was a Maori living in BC for some reason, which was pretty cool. Um I learned some Maori songs and stuff when I was a kid. But um <laughs> Uh, it sounds like the uh, the cultural practices uh, are tied into this idea of mana. Um, so it says here, authority, uh, one of the meanings of mana is tied to, I'm not going to pronounce it, it starts with an H, mana H something, defined as, quote, an authority derived from having wealth of resources to give to others to bind them into reciprocal obligations. This sounds like the potlatch stuff that we have here. Um does that sound familiar? Like the similar? what stuff? Potlatch? You, don't, you haven't heard of the potlatch? No. Okay, so potlatch is um, basically you've got a community and you're, there's a neighboring community up the coast. And you invite everybody in the neighboring community to come visit you. And you have a massive party, a huge, huge party, um, where you give them endless gifts, you know, totally depleting your your production um and uh then that means you have power <laughs> because you've done yeah. that now then the neighboring community they they god damn it they took our power so they hold a giant party um and invite you and you go there and you enjoy their stuff and it's it's very interesting because it's kind of an economic cultural um you know it's a mixer thing it's a, it's not war and it's not uh, commerce, but it does uh, what commerce can do, which is enrich everybody. And also, it it's like the explanation for uh, pro- nobody would nobody would be productive if they didn't have money, right? Didn't go for money. <laughs> These this system is the opposite, right? You be productive so that you can get rid of everything, um, and of course it allows for the communication communication of of debt which is kind of what 
the real economic system is is not money but debt is that yeah sound is that familiar? like personal yeah sort of like personal debt well like, call, uh, like an honor kind of thing yeah but like, not personal debt this is like for you know you go by their village and they owe you and you owe them so you're nice to them and they're nice to you right it's kind of a way of uh being friendly with people who are not your friends Ah, see, I don't know if it is used Maybe, the same way in New Zealand. Um, it sounds the same here, but I, I, I don't know how rock like BC is super rocky, right? So it's very hard to communicate uh, long distances inland. But the coast is fairly so it developed, and you know, this is in Washington State as well. But it was it was banned by the Canadian government um, for a long time. And it's it's the practice it, was yeah because it they didn't understand it and it was you can't divide and conquer as well if you if you're united right so, oh that's so interesting yeah it's interesting I, I feel like with the Maori it's more of a like a spiritual power or like a well um, that's uh, that's how we would probably describe it here okay as well but that's not I mean. <laughs> Uh, you know, the potlatch has a lot of gods and spirits and stuff like that associated with it. So, oh, you know, cool. like if you go to the UBC Museum of Anthropology, there's endless artifacts there to look where, at. They're all associated. Where is that museum, Jesse? Uh, it's in Vancouver. It's at UBC, uh, University of British Columbia. It's okay. a big I, anthropology I, museum. Beautiful. Get, I've, I've tweeted some pictures of it years ago, but... Um, I just think it's it's interesting. We've got a we've got a a real like that is magical in a certain sense, right? That you can conceive of a system of economics that doesn't involve money um, and that motivates tons and tons of people to do it, and yet um, doesn't fit the the model. But it is explainable in terms of uh, if you look at it like as Economics is debt, not as uh, currency. Mm. I think it's interesting. Uh, it was yeah. Sort of sidetracked there, but there, there are many ways of being human and doing human things. And that's yeah, a, and they're not that's a, all that's a theme money. Of, yeah, that that's a theme in a lot of Niven's work. This is why I like reading Niven. Is even even when his uh, execution in the in some of the details isn't great. His he's always solving pro solving ideas, right? thinking through and, things in a way that seems really important to me. And you are you are about the ideas, so yeah, I can see why Niven is one of your touchstone authors for good reason. Even even if the execution of the last part of this novel isn't great, this this I, the only ideas in working out well what what would a mana society thirteen thousand BC actually entail and what would the consequences be is interesting. There are a couple things I think he could have done I mean, he doesn't because he doesn't go into geography so much, but I, that that he might have might have uh, thought about and done. Like for example, if this is really thirteen thousand BC, at this point, Doggerland is still above the waves, and so the British Isles are connected to Europe. So that whole area flooded like eight thousand BC, I think. So I mean that. So he, I mean, he could. Going to, he could he could have if he's always so wants he could explore the the changes to just to Earth to Europe's it's, geography it's, um, it, as it, as the magic goes away it makes me think that uh, the unstated name here that's not mentioned 
is uh, Robert E. Howard. This is total Robert oh, God, E. Howard yes. oh, territory, yes. right? Oh, oh, yeah. It's his own Hyborian age. Yeah. I but think Acheron's mentioned in here, which is also, uh, you know, it's from Volusia. And, uh, and so if you guys don't know, Marissa, uh, Scott, um, King Cull was an Atlantean. He's he's uh, Robert E. Howard's first uh, sort of uh, sword and sorcery character who is actually, if you read his stories, are really interesting because they're very philosophical. Unlike um, Conan, who's more of uh, rough and tumble. He says he doesn't like philosophy, but secretly he does. Um, f- uh, king Cull is a philosopher king who is, you know, dealing with a magic-heavy universe. And, which, uh, which which just makes me more angry about that stupid movie. You know, you just turn him into a Conan clone. Well, well actually, like, well, actually, that's actually the most faithful Robert E. Howard thing. Other than, I mean, it's not a great movie. I agree, but it's it's faithful to the book in a way. Um, and that book was also rewritten by Howard uh, to be a Conan story. So it kind of it, uh, the you're talking about the one with the what's the actor Kevin Sorbo. Yes, that well, they, uh, that's the one. I'm talking yeah, it's not about. a good movie, but it it's fairly faithful. Well, some somewhat faithful to this. Some 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 faithfulness, but otherwise, yeah, he's 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 much more Conan than the than the actual literary. Yeah, it's Conan. hard to show philosophy in film, though, right? It's um, a, a thoughtfulness it, it's, and it's hard stories. to show, show philosophy in in uh in dig, in in uh in media. Although I've been rewatching uh season two of the good place and what the good place talks about philosophy in the series so there you go all right um good show love that show yeah <laughs> luke really likes and luke burridge and uh juliana mm-hmm. i think really like it too um i, I think we're coming on our time yeah we're coming close any uh closing thoughts before everybody disappears in a poof of magic <laughs> i wanted to ask um because i thought the dialogue and the interactions between the character and characters in this book was so funny. Mm-hmm. Is are his other books? I think he like has a good. Or? I think he has a good sense of humor. Yeah. Um, people don't like the relationship he has with women. A lot of mm-hmm. people don't like it, but I, I don't think it's that bad. I think it's. It, in this one, it didn't seem no, too bad. It's it, this is typical, is what I would say. Yeah, I, I mean, you just have to get. Uh, the right Niven characters together to get the back and forth. Like for example, Ringworld, there's great back and forth between Louis Speaker and Nessus mm-hmm. and uh, and Tila. That I, I mean, especially Louis Speaker and Nessus make a great trio. It's just like bantering back and forth. Yeah, his dialogue is is generally pretty good. Yeah. Um, so it's yeah, you, if you like this, I think you're gonna like uh, a lot of his. Protector is damn hard SF. Good, good stuff. Character, but just but just character. Yeah, it's character low. I think Ringworld is much more better for the character if you want if you want that sort of like and it's let's travel ideas. across you yeah and start bickering with each other as we're trying to solve a problem. But also having, having motivations. So uh, I, I'm I sort of wasn't paying as much attention to the details at the end because I was bored by them. But um, <laughs> I was thinking a lot about uh, how good some of the earlier stuff was while I was listening to it. Um, I, I, is it the case? I, I, I think I was thinking that um, Wavy Hill was going to be the baddie. He was going to betray them. Mm. Um, and I, I already made the connection to um, to Neuromancer. Um, yeah, because he's the world's first necromancer. Yeah. Right. 
Uh, I mean, it's not really a dead-on match, but it is a heist movie. It is a heist movie that goes wrong. Yeah, a heist that goes real wrong. And yeah, I, I and I hadn't read this one, and I was thinking, is Wave Hill the bad guy? Is this he's trying to get revenge for what happened and what goes Yeah, and dagger? he's hiding <laughs> things from people, right? And then I was thinking, well, does that make the the God within a God, um, the AI <laughs> in uh, Neuromancer? Um, this is all before Neuromancer, right? So it doesn't quite yeah. fit. But there's somehow he's really dealing with something very, um, uh, I don't know, Joseph Campbelly. You know? Oh yeah, and that's I, mean, yeah, I guess why it feels like that. Yeah, Joseph Campbell before Joseph Campbell. Yeah, but he's uh, he's, de- he's dealing with the with the the epic, and doing a good job. Yeah, and then how well, I, I agree with what you're yeah. saying there, Jesse. But I, I don't know why. But you know, I just really didn't connect with this book very much. Um, but yet, the broken sword, which I know you didn't like very much, that like hit really this epic huh. thing. Yeah. Oh, yeah, and then you know, and it's written in a similar style, right? Yeah, and then I, um, you know, I remember Elric and how much I loved Elric of Melnibony, um, the first Morpho. Yeah, yeah. Um, that was written in a similar style too, and I was blown away by that. Um, there was just some kind of this epic thing. Somehow, I didn't feel that here. It was like an attempt that was missed to me. Um, I feel that in the bottom. I don't know end, why. Though. I can't put my finger on why. I can't point at why. Mm. But for some reason, I, it just didn't. I don't know why. Huh. But I did love the ideas in it. You know, but all this stuff that you're pointing out is really interesting. Let me let me read the some last page, and you, you tell me what, what's going on here, okay? Mm-hmm. Okay. Uh, we'll spend the night in the cave, Orlandi said. Get out of here in the morning. We'll be hungry. You'll probably summon all the game in the area, so I'll put my spirit back together, and we'll put the pack on, the, on you, uh, Clubfoot. It'll be empty anyway. You, w- you won't want your tools now. What about the skulls? That's the skulls of, uh, uh, yeah, of uh, Wavy Hill and um, uh, Warlock. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, might as well leave them. I, I wish. What? Nothing. <laughs> <laughs> what was the wish? Hmm, I wanted that too. Is that just designed to make me read the next book? <laughs> but, there, but yeah, but but yeah, but he doesn't he doesn't go back to this for a long time, so it's it's like kind of left hanging. What what was uh, Clubfoot wishing for? Mm. Um, I think he's wishing that things had gone differently because Club Clubfoot Clubfoot is now really the last great sorcerer, and that's a really really hard thing. And and, and even and, and especially in the fact that he's the last great sorcerer, and he was only a tiny fraction of the power of the of uh, Wavy Hill, who was only a fraction of the power of Warlock. So it's like there, there's there's a diminishment in the sadness, which I agree with you, Scott, that the Broken Sword gets a lot better. That yeah, that, that this era is passing, and there's really nothing he can do about it. He can only wish, and wishes don't come true anymore. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that must have, that must be it. I think you're right, Paul. Wishes don't come true anymore. <laughs> now I'm sad. Well, 
<laughs> Thanks, Paul. <laughs> but they do know. <laughs> well, you can find some mana in Antarctica or under the sea. <laughs> well, or just yeah. just wait for the background level to go up again, thanks to meteorites. Like, but that took thousands of years. Yeah, I mean that, that's that's the kind of yeah. detail I think he's so he's so clever. You wish upon a star, right? A shooting star falling from the sky, that's the only time your wish can come true. I mean, come on. Yep. He is not spelling it all out, but he's pointing to it. And when we put it together, I think that's the joy of reading this, um, is thinking through, oh, geez, that's right, right? Like, um, it's never mentioned in here, I don't think at all, but uh, Merlin, right? One of these historical, pseudo-historical associates who's probably not real, but associated, right? He's he's out there doing stuff. And what's the one thing we know about Merlin that's his magic? He ages backwards, right? That's Merlin starts off as an old man and ends up as a young man, is what we're told. And sometimes that's explained through time travel, um, you know, in different stories. But here it's just explained they have these spells, right, that, that, that make them younger. And Mirandi's hair color... Um, She's only 70, so she has almost no power, right? M- magical power. But yeah. as her hair goes from black to white, you know, watch <laughs> for her hair <laughs> in case it goes. <laughs> if it goes to white, yep, the magic's, the magic's going away. Yep. And the vampire spell. I mean, this is good stuff. This is yeah. very, very interesting. And obviously it's not going to be remembered in the way that uh, Ringworld would be or I think Protector should be. Um, but I think it's 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 a very nice exercise. And uh, like um, taking Dante's Inferno seriously and then throwing a science fiction writer, a.k.a. Larry Niven, into hell <laughs> and seeing what how it would actually work and having that adventure, totally worthwhile. So I yeah. maybe maybe I would say read this for the pictures, and then read the original <laughs> short stories rather than this rewrite. Did you know that the original short was yeah. uh, withdrawn? It's not very long. I'd, I'd recommend people read it just for the ideas. Yeah, it's, yeah. I mean the, the, that it's stuff is really cool. Yeah. The original short was withdrawn from consideration for uh, Hugo. I think probably because it was in competition with another Larry Nevin. Mm-hmm. But um, I think it would be better known if uh, it, it, because it probably would have, well, maybe it wouldn't have won. It doesn't matter. I think it is pretty well known. I guess, yeah. Book. Well, mm-hmm. uh, the original short story is what I've, because uh, this is the same title, right? So people know this book. They don't know the original, which I don't think is in print at all. Um, yeah. Yeah. Because we're going to have a lot of nice art in the post, I think. <coughs> Fantastic. Nice. Fantastic. I'm going mythical. All right. <laughs> Goodbye. I'll see you later. Have a good day. <laughs> this has been the SFF Audio Podcast. Please join us at www.sffaudio.com. So I think the next one I'm on is Book of Skulls. Which I also have on my Oh, God, Silverberg. Oh, God, we're going to have to talk about Silverberg. Oh, God, help us. What happened? 
some scandal. You didn't hear, did you? I oh, no. vaguely heard something about somebody complaining about something, but I didn't. Up, up, Ro- Ro- Robert Silverstein had a shit fit at the Hugo's about N.K. Jemison, and yeah, things went bad. Silverberg did. Silverberg did. Yes. Yeah. Did Silverberg? What problem did he have with Jemison? Uh, he he uh, he thinks that he was she was crude and uncouth at the Hugo's and in the speech. Yeah. The speech. So yeah, he so, had that. I mean, is Silverberg like an ultra conservative guy or something? Silverberg <laughs> I always thought is, he'd be the opposite. <laughs> he's the he's the master of ceremonies, right? So that's his it's his his baby. Yeah, yeah. He's yeah. been running the that stuff for a long time. Yeah, and, and, okay. and, and, and he said things like, "Oh yeah, I've never read any of her work and all this stuff." And he he really shit on her and the speech and everything. Yeah, and I don't think her speech was good. I think it was it was bad. In fact, um, I read it, and well, the, what, the problem is there's politics is everywhere. You know, it's just yeah, it, it's just a bummer. It's, it's but what like, she said, it was, I actually bought her book again because I tried I tried to read uh, fifth season and I didn't really like it very much i mean i didn't hate it i i think i might have read it at the wrong time but um after her speech i actually bought a copy again and i'm gonna i'm gonna read it because of what she said you know it was about and uh, i want to read it in that light but yeah. i don't think her speech was horrible but i hate that politics is everything now yeah. every single thing yeah and i'm speaking as a catholic which uh, <laughs> you know because it's there too it's like that the Catholic Church is split in half. Conservatives yeah. and liberals everywhere I turn, everybody's taking corners. Well, that's their big, that's their big first problem is they're identifying uh, on a team. Uh, yep. Don't vote for teams. Don't put yourself on a team. Team logic. Team reasonableness. Team thoughtfulness. That's team, my team. Yeah. Can't we can't we assume that we all want the best and um, and make decisions? So I was looking at I was looking at her her speech. It, it wasn't the uh, I guess words individual words, but I thought it was like um, this is this is not. I, I don't really think speeches are generally very interesting unless they're they're uh, telling me some ideas. But this was basically. Um, I thought there was like, ha ha, that's what. Well, it, part I read. of it, yeah, she was she was responding to some crappy things that ha, happened. Ha ha, fuck you, I win, like that. Well, well, well some of it I was, mean, some of it was, but which, she also to me did is not talk good. about what her books were well, and what. When you have about. when you have neo Nazis protesting outside the convention center, Jesse, can you blame her? Um. I'm not blaming her. I'm saying that, no, but, that but, this but, is but not smart and would, this is not wise. But, but but I could see why you would raise a middle finger if you've got yeah, and that's how you get World War Two, right? So what do you do at the end of World War One? You say, "Ha ha, we won! Fuck you! You have to pay!" And then what happens? But we didn't do that. No, oh, we did actually at the end of World War. We, well, we did at the end of World War One, right? And that's and where we, we got it, World we War Two. We did it right at the end of World War Two. And we did it right at the end of World War II, 100. percent And notice yeah. there was no "ha ha, fuck you, we win." Well, no, no, but, but we did. We did put all the Nazis on trial. Uh and not enough of the Japanese. Um, not enough of the Japanese. True. And we didn't put all the Nazis on trial and convict them all. 
forgiveness shouldn't include uh, it. It doesn't uh, eliminate consequences. I don't it's know what that means, to. but it sounds good. Explain it <laughs> one more time. Forgiveness. Uh, right? I, I just said forgiveness doesn't mean that you don't have consequences, right? So you can you can forgive sure. the country of Germany, but you still need but, to. Follow but they also through. said this is what you have wrought, right? right. And they brought yeah. everybody to the concentration camps, and says this is what you have wrought. Um, the 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 current political problems in the United States are from not like from not dealing with all the horror horror uh, that's been going on last 40 years since Vietnam, right? Like, there's a lot of screwed up things going on. Um, <laughs> I, I've been reading uh, in the last couple of days, of, politics I've been reading have been all about John McCain's funeral. Yeah. <laughs> Steam keeps saying, everybody just has to say, five plain McCain. I was like... Steen, nobody's going to know what you're talking about. Steen, of course, is obsessed with airplane crashes, so he knows all about how many airplanes that John McCain crashed. He crashed five of them, right? Um, and and a lot of them were due to him being a, like a bad pilot, but on purpose, sort of like enjoying himself in ways. It's like, that's not where the main criticism to go after. Main criticism to go after is he never met a war he didn't like. Um uh, the, there was an onion story about how uh, uh, John McCain requests his ashes be spread over Iraq. <laughs> and, oh, ow. And it's like, that is nice, withering um, criticism because he really wanted that war. He wanted war. There was a, another really good one that showed a map of all the countries that John McCain wanted to invade. And a quote where he wanted to, you know, how strong the quote was. Was it just a soundbite from an interview? Or was it an impassioned speech? Was it a bill he voted for? And it was pretty much a, a laundry list of every country in the world except for, you know, Canada. And uh, um, I don't think there was, uh, I don't think there was anything. Oh, yeah, there was stuff in Africa. Libya. Uh, <laughs> um, he he wants to invade a lot of places. He wanted to invade a lot of places. And then the people giving speeches at his funeral, like, um, uh, what's his name? Uh, Kissinger, right? Mm -hmm. uh, he's not a good man. Not a good guy, right? And so there's, there's lots of... So it, it's a mistake to go, ha-ha, we win, you suck. Right, that is not how you make friends. So that's what I thought was that's bad about true. this this speech mm -hmm. is that um, she doesn't say, um, uh, you know, I love science fiction. <laughs> I think <laughs> science fiction is full of great ideas, and I I want to thank uh, my fellow nominees for being writing such great books or anything like that. Like I don't think these speeches are very important, but I think it was a mistake. Okay. She she was okay. kind of bragging is what she was saying, right? Look, I'm I did it, and that's not a way to, and also the the I'm not a big person about tone, you know. I don't mm -hmm. think that that's important. But it, I'm looking at the words here. Listen to this paragraph. Uh, yes, there will be naysayers. I know I'm here on this stage accepting this award for pretty much the same reason as every previous novel winner because I worked my ass off. Uh, lots of people work their asses off to make their books, and that's not why they always get... So that's not the explanation. That's just saying all writers work their asses off. 
that's not super dignified. Maybe that's what Silverberg's complaining about. I poured my pain onto paper when I could not afford therapy. I have studied mm-hmm. the works of literature that range widely and dig deeply to learn what I could and refine my voice. I've written a million words of crap and probably a million more of meh. <laughs> the word mm-hmm. meh is now an official word. Oh, my. Yeah. <laughs> that, that is a real word. Uh, yeah. yeah, but if it's in a speech like this, right, that became, this where it gets an OED citation rather than some... So here, here's the part of her speech that made me uh, say, I'm going to read this one more uh-huh. time. Let's see. <laughs> I get a lot of questions about where the themes of Broken Earth Trilogy come from. I think it's pretty obvious that I'm drawing on the human history of structural oppression, as well as my feelings about this moment in American history. What may be less obvious, though, is how much the story derives from my feelings about science fiction and fantasy. Then again, SFF is a microcosm of the wider world and no way rarefied from the world's pettiness or prejudice. Mm-hmm. But another thing I tried to it touch on be, in The Broken Earth is it that life tough. life in a hard world is never just the struggle. Life is family, blood, and found. I'm not sure yep. what that is. The blood yep. family and found family. Well, like, yep. Right, yeah, right. Okay, yeah. Blood, blood family, and found, found right. family. Life is those allies who prove themselves worthy by actions and not just talk. Yep. Life means celebrating every victory no matter how small. I, I, I can see how, yeah, those themes. So I saw that and I was like, okay, I missed what this is about. Let me try again. Mm. Yeah, those themes are so, but I, And I'm no fan of identity politics and stuff like that. I wish I wish we could all just treat each other without being in groups. You know what I mean? Uh, but I know how hard that is. And I know people have been treated incorrectly. Um, I don't know. I don't know how we get through this, though. I don't know how we move forward, but well, it's not like uh, this. I'm listen very to this interested paragraph. to read this book again. Listen What's to this, that? Listen to this paragraph. It's not through this, but this mm. is the year in which I get to smile at all those naysayers, every single mediocre, insecure wannabe <laughs> who fixes their mouth to suggest that I do not not belong on this stage, that people like me cannot possibly have earned such an honor, that when they win it is meritocracy, but when we win, it's identity politics. Who is right. we? Okay, she's she's talking to some people that are very specific, and if you if you'd right. followed what was going on, she's talking to certain people. Right, but the we here she's not talking the, to the world here. Right? I, I, I get we, that, we, and we, then she says, "I get to smile at those people and lift right. a massive shining rocket-shaped middle finger in their direction." So that part is probably the part that triggered. <laughs> I'm using that it, it, their language. Maybe maybe, uh, maybe Silverberg. Silverberg was offended on a. I don't know. I don't even know that I want to look into it. But I always thought Silverberg was a pretty classy, decent guy. So I don't know. He's, he's, I mean, he seems okay. Uh, he seems he seems really good to me. But um, I mean, but maybe, I mean, she's, maybe he was just like, yeah, she, let's not. She's throw talking. I mean, she's she's pointing really at Theodore Beale, who once said that, "How can an uneducated half savage like N.K. Jemison ever win an award?" And why and are we directing all so so much attention to some idiot? There's some because, 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 and now he, everybody... because he tried to break because he tried to break the Hugo Awards, Jesse. That's why we're directing attention because he because he tried to shit on them and I've been and shitting so on saying, the Hugos for a long you. time. What's that? I've been shitting on the Hugos for a no, long no, but time. but but he he tried to mobilize people to actually take them over, and I, so I, I, she she sees herself as and her three wins as like no you you failed you failed you bleep 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 bleep, and so. 
Yeah. She's taking a picture without having one. Again, a mistake. So this is this is classic. You know, you have a palace coup. Somebody tries to. If you're yeah, if you're saying you know, wouldn't it have been better if she went up and made a speech? Why is that this included what I read and maybe some other things about like what you're saying and then moved on? Maybe, but she was yeah, she was mad. Yeah, but th- this is this is not um, it's not it's not wise. You don't you, yeah. you don't elevate the voice he's of an idiot. react to it, and re- the reason it's not wise is because he'll react. Nah, it's he is a tiny little guy, so but, I think he will. <laughs> but. <laughs> I don't. Is, is it's this, true. I used to follow this stuff, and I used to look okay. at his blog for this specific reason. It was oh, when God, Mary Robinette. You. It was when Mary Robinette Cole, uh, when her term was over, and the day after, she said, um, "I've got to say fuck you to a lot of people here." Yeah, uh, the, it was. It was really is, striking, you know, because I know her, and that's not really kind of her. That's and not her, for her thing, to be yeah. that upset, I was like, I wonder what the hell happened because I was oblivious to it. It's a lot of po- it's all a lot of politics, but well, you can call it politics, but yeah, I guess. Well, it is. Uh, look, um, this is uh, you know, I I used to follow the the what's the movie awards? They're mm-hmm. called Oscars. Oscars, right? I used to watch that, and I used to think that the movies that they were giving awards to were the best movies. Like, like that's what I thought the Hugo Awards uh, was, I, right? I, I totally get where you're going, yeah. Right. And, and now you can predict the winner just by subject uh, I began. I was able to predict the winner pretty well for, like, last five years that I watched it. Um, because it, it's it's about whose turn is it. It's And so, like, um, Connie Willis is a good writer. But mm-hmm. uh, I can't believe that she's the only writer consistently able to write uh, great novels year after year after year because I read them. I read, you know, to say nothing of the dog and uh, uh, what's Doomsday the, Book. Hmm. Do, uh, do, yeah, and Doomsday, yeah, Doomsday book, book is is way too long. Um, and there's a lots of like she she's wrote lots of novels that I've read. I've read a lot of her stuff, and I was like, well, she's she's good. She's got some good stuff. Her short stories I think are better, although that I just generally like short stories more, but. Is it possible that there's other voices out there that are not giving as much attention as they deserve? Absolutely. Absolutely. Because if you don't play the politics game, you don't win. How do I know this? My podcast is way better than most of the podcasts that have ever been nominated for a Tuco Award. <laughs> How do I know this? Well, I, because I see yeah. the list, and then I go and listen to them. I'm like, this isn't even... This isn't even... This isn't mm-hmm. even what they claim it to be, Right. And it's, it's like that is really interesting because I, I I've nominated you every year since I first started and because I, I guess because I don't I you'll never hear on this show you'll never hear me say go uh, rate us on iTunes and uh, like us on Facebook right never and the reason I hit on every other podcast including uh, including Skiffy and Fanty to be precise of yeah. course they do and what you're doing is you're boosting iTunes and you're boosting Facebook and that's not right. That's playing politics. Um, it, would it be better that more people knew that I had a decent show? Probably for them, but it isn't better <laughs> for me and it isn't better for the show and playing the game of, of wanting to win awards. I, I think that that's a huge mistake because people spend a lot of time. Uh, they're, uh, 
they, they can make the claim, and I think this is a, a true claim, that they can make more money if they have an award under their belt, right? The, more people draw attention to it. But I think also, uh, after a certain point, when it all becomes a political game, right? I don't think that it 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 just draws it pushes people away, and I think that that's what we've got to in this point when everything's it's that's that's why I don't watch the the Academy Awards anymore, right? It's because it's it's yeah so predictable and it's so much about who's playing the game the right way this week and you know (laughs) uh, who do we want to publicly show our support for is that that's not what it's really about i mean the technical awards probably are not like that right <laughs> for the yeah probably not and, and maybe the short story awards in the in the uh hugos are not like that yeah and i i don't nominate much um in fact i used to vote regularly and then i backed away and now i'm planning to rejoin next year um it's like real just because i miss too, it right? and i want to be part of it and um but the uh I feel like, you know, once the novel nominees are there, um, they usually pick the right one out, out of those. You know, should more of them have been nominated? I, yeah, maybe. Yeah, I don't read them, so I can't. I can't but, but uh, you know, what, what the Hugo Awards are, members of the World Science Fiction Society, right, that are members of the convention every year, that get together and they vote. So it's, it's not even the yeah, general not, population, yeah. you know what I mean? Yeah, and you it is whatever's popular at the moment. That's really what the Hugos are, is, uh, you know, it, it's in a way, it's a history of science fiction. Um, it's not to say that it's the only thing that's going on. And yeah, it's only one Dragon way Dragon to Con look at this weekend, DragonCon is this Dragon Con is going awards? on. Oh, no, th- those are the Dragon Awards. At the yeah, Hugo. did they give the Dragon Awards yet? Is that um, I don't think so. I know they gave out the U.G. Foster Award. <clears throat> Which okay. uh, my friend friend Wild just won. Isn't E.G. Foster have... still alive? No, know. I'm afraid not. Oh, okay, that's why. Okay. But yeah. So yes. Yeah, so to write a column for E.G. Foster. Really? Yeah, I, I was writing. I was going through the Hugos. Actually, <laughs> kind of funny. It was called Rocket Science. I remember that. And uh, I, what was the name of that publication? Oh, E.G. Um, Foster died. She in was the editor. She was the editor. So I was writing. Um, I had gone through about maybe 10 columns and then it, everything just kind of fell apart. They stopped uh, publishing the what it, whatever it was I was writing for. Blogs I don't know fell why apart, I, you know. <laughs> Yes. <laughs> but um, but yeah, I was going through uh, the short fiction um, winners every year and it's not even online anymore. Um, I can't remember the name. What's that? Wayback Machine. It. You have Way to back. find the address, though. That's the hard part. Hold on. You know what? It'll be in my Evernote. Until they delete Evernote. <laughs> whoever, whoever owns Evernote now. Yeah. Well, the Evernote still does. Oh, Evernote still uh, owns Evernote? Yep. So wow. I'm, still waiting. I'm still waiting in horror for somebody like Microsoft to buy them. Yeah. Because I love this app. I remember when it um, came out. The Fix was what it was called. The Fix Online. I remember that. And she was the editor. And I wrote, it was 2009. So I'm looking at one I wrote about Flowers for Algernon, Alamagusa, I've read that those. Hellbound Train. I've read that. 
I think I read uh, all of those because I was reading your column. <laughs> no truce with kings. Oh, there's one. That's Darth that, that, Bull Anderson again. No truce with yep. kings. Yeah. Yeah. So, uh, but yeah, it was fun. But anyway, that's.